John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1094.gn3912, certificate number 44390. Sadie Hawkins Day. Little lad, now we has both learned, still don't know how money gets earned. His heart is the tenderest, but neutergender as far as young gals is concerned. I get pretty tired of running Now, we don't know what order the far future post-humans are listening to these oh. entries in. Is are you it? saying they're not listening? Maybe they're listening in numerical order. Sure. Yeah. Like maybe Sadie Hawkins comes right after sack lunches and uh, Sabbath, uh, comma, black for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Hey, don't don't uh, foreshadow any of the shows I'm going to do. I, don't, I hate to spoil. <laughs> I don't know why you didn't just alphabetize it under Black Sabbath, but okay. Uh but uh, perhaps, I mean, it's a reference work. Sometimes you, right. sometimes you just pull a reference book down from the shelf and page through it in order. Sometimes you're looking something up. Sure, you thumb through it, or you, or you go right to what you're. And I've never thought about for. that. Some some uh, twenty legged centipede man uh, going to his shelf of omnibus gold records because he suddenly has a question about Sadie Hawkins Day or. Chinook jargon or whatever. Right. Um, this is a case where I had never heard of Chinook jargon, despite being a Seattle native, <laughs> until you mentioned it on the last show we recorded. Because we, we do have a chronological order. We're three-dimensional beings. Right. I didn't, you know, one of the things I didn't mention was Haida jargon, which is a different trade language of the, of the uh, Pacific Coast Native like, Americans. Is it like a Haida bed? Like that's why you didn't talk about it. It was all it was all folded up in the couch. No, you know the Haida were the most uh, sort of uh, raiding, warlike tribes of the Northwest Coast, and they ranged far and um, and were. Are they north of the Chinook? Are yeah. they like? Are they like? Yeah, they're what's today British Alaska, Columbia, Alaska? Pan- Panhandle, mm. and uh, they were like slave takers and uh, and village burners. So I'm guessing that the Haida jargon was a little bit more like 
well, you know, phrases like get on your knees and right. <laughs> instead of having 60 words for snow, they had 60 words for bloody snow. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's great. If you have anything more you want to say about Chinook jargon while we're doing, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll add it to our, uh, to our addenda, uh, episodes, which are, uh, which are, uh, available to our Patreon. Delightful monthly fun we have on, on Patreon. Right. Uh, because people do, people from our era do contact us with, uh, suggestions and stories they've thought of and, and we have a lot of fun with that right Do, would you like to add anything to the uh aa episode do you have another hour on alcoholics anonymous listen i i have i have a lot of thoughts about that and we may we I, we may have to pull that out of the regular feed because uh, i need to rethink that i need to rethink that episode i feel like i got my two hour chip just doing that yeah <laughs> Anyway, I had so I had never heard of Chinook jargon before, much less Haida jargon. Mm. You're just you're just inventing new jargons I all am, the time, and I, I, I think you're pranking. I me. have indie rock jargon. <laughs> Is it that uh, grunge lexicon? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Catch you on the flippy flop, Jack. Slacks. <laughs> the uh, so, but there's a there's a scenario whereby if you you know you hear about something new and then suddenly you it, it seems to be everywhere in your life. Mm-hmm. It's often called Bader Meinhof. Uh, phenomenon. I'm not sure why, be- because hmm, it right. makes you blow up a, a, a bank in Frankfurt or something. I don't see how Butter Meinhof, uh, which I should do an episode on. Right, that will be in the once we've mentioned it. By the way, you will start hearing about Butter Meinhof and Butter Meinhof phenomenon everywhere. I always think of it as the Volkswagen bug phenomenon, which is uh, at least this used to be true. Um, if you noticed a Volkswagen bug and took and really took notice of it, like, oh, right, a Volkswagen bug. Those exist. Then you would see them everywhere. And it's true also if you buy an interesting yes, car. Exactly. Suddenly you realize, oh, I got a Nissan Sentra and they're they're everywhere. I just assumed the, the bugs were uh, were reproducing, like that I I'd gotten yeah. close to a nest. But so, something happened and they became sterilized by the additional like uh UV rays. Yeah, once they started making the f- weird fancy ones, those are mutants. The- totally mutants, and and I don't think people are buying them. Like when they first came out, it seemed like they were very popular. Yeah, people were delighted that the Beetle was back, but, but I don't see they're them just very kind of mis- and they're turning more and more into regular cars. It is like mutants, yeah. like because every generation the cloning gets further away from the cute, the cute sixties Beetle yeah, shape. They're not cute anymore. I don't know why they did that. Uh, but uh, just today, while preparing to uh, record an omnibus about Sadie Hawkins Day, mm-hmm. I learned, you know, I found that there's a very direct Chinook jargon connection. This is Chinook jargon part two, basically. Okay. Uh, and I learned that I knew, in fact, a couple of words of Chinookwawa, oh. which I didn't know. Uh, apparently, the expression... High muckety muck. Yes. Which I don't think of as a local Seattle thing. Doesn't the world have high muckety mucks? Uh, well, it's just a way of saying grand poobah or uh, you know big shot. It does, but the but the but the terminology comes from Chinook jargon. Yeah, it, it was it was hayu mucka muck. Yeah, and hayu did not mean high. It just meant it, that means plenty of food. <laughs> plenty, so a powerful a powerful person, a big shot, is just in that era the well fed. Hi, monkey muck trader. Yeah. Well, I, uh, we know also. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure you you know that the term Skid Row comes from Seattle. Yes, but not via Chinook, right? It's no, no, no. It, it was um, uh, Yesler Way. They actually skidded the logs down the muddy slope. Lumber towns would have a Skid Row where you would skid the. Although Skid has always seemed like not the verb I would use. Why isn't it Slide Row or? Uh, well, it's like 23 skidoo. It was yeah, a, maybe it, things were skidding more back they then. They skidded a lot, yeah. 
uh, as was the style at the time. Uh, the other word uh, that I learned that I already knew of Chinook, we will get to in due course discussing Sadie Hawkins dance. It's a, a 20th century American tradition, which I think still persists today, of there being one occasion in the year when the girls can ask out the boys. Yes. One one day, this this celebrated and nerve-wracking day where the girls ask the boys. Which really makes it fair, if you yes. think about it. Yes. They didn't used to have a day. Yep. Now they do. Thank and goodness. gender parity has been <laughs> Thank achieved. goodness the girls get a day. Uh, this is an older tradition than... Uh, Sadie Hawkins has existed. There was a, in the 19th century, there was a tradition of leap day, I believe February 29th, or Mm -hmm. maybe so once every four years, you can see how much progress we're making Mm -hmm. once every four years, the women would be able to ask out the men. Oh, because it was a leap day. It was some kind of crazy upside down day. It's, it's a topsy turvydom. Uh You wear your shirts backwards like crisscross. What's the weirdest thing you can imagine? A woman (laughs) expressing interest in a man. And that, what if that happened? It's still astonishing to consider. And so it was a comic trope and there'd be, you know, maybe slightly naughty postcards of uh, showing kind of spinster ant looking women and, and homely in sisters-in-law mm-hmm. with big butterfly nets and and the men are, are running scared. I mean, the battle of the sexes was, uh-huh. was, was much more of a battle uh-huh. in olden times, I think, looking at this stuff. Big Ethel was chasing Jughead around the malt shop. Yeah, it's a stereotype we don't have so much because it's really not a good look. The uh, Have you seen a recent Archie comic? Uh, big Ethel has been de-Ethelized. To the point that uh, she looks very much like the other people in Archie. Are these the ones that are still drawn in kind of the Dan DiCarlo Archie style? Or are these the modern ones where they kind of look anime and, and uh, Archie's in a, you know, just always got his guitar? They, they, look, they look similar enough to the old style. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, every, but everyone's features, I mean, there, there's been a rush to the middle. So it, they, everybody kind of looks at least more alike than before. I mean, Big Ethel used to be drawn in the Ichabod Crane style of spinster ant, tall and and flat-chested and um, buck-toothed. And now she's um, she just looks like a like she's one modicum taller than Betty. Is Moose has is Moose different? Because obviously this is a this is a gendered problem we have with this stereotype that we've created of the hapless homely right uh, person it it you know that really only cuts one way i haven't seen the moose and midge dynamic uh I, i'm not actually consuming these archie comics i just saw them at one point because i was it's weird how often you mention them for a non <laughs> for a non-consumer i was searching big ethel actually trying to trying to see what Try, had happened trying to find her number yeah and uh but i didn't i didn't <laughs> look into the, to the moose midge dynamic because that was also a real um you know a dynamic of that would have been either comedic or commonplace in the in ye olden times which was the big dumb boyfriend who was extremely jealous of his tiny little Dark-haired girlfriend who was Tin Moonraker, right? Yeah. Jaws and the little and the little tiny four foot nothing girl who <laughs> cottons to him. But Midge was always uh, sort of chastely flirty with all the other boys. It seemed like Midge was always inspiring some jealousy on the part of Big Moose. 
just again for for the comedic uh, uh, value, but I'm not sure how they they could be playing that in contemporary Archies. I can't get over the fact that this stereotype never really had any pathos to it. It was strictly for yucks. Look, this girl can't get a date. <laughs> like what? What? What's funny about that? I mean, like it seems like the obvious place to go there is to kind of you know show us her inner life. Yeah, and no, nobody particularly cared to do that. No, look, I mean, she's 28 and she's not married. What a just, loser! Oh wow, I'm looking at the new drawings of Archie, and it's awful. Is oh, are these the kind these of ones where Archie's kind of a James Dean type, and it's it's not drawn in the the old timey style? Well, I mean, I'm just seeing. There's so many different Archies now, man. It's just like, yeah, it's it's. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Archies. Yeah. There's, anyway, there's a multiverse of Archies. Anyway, you know, Archie, there were a, there were there were a lot of situations where the girls asked out the boys in Archie, right? Betty was always kind of working some angle. Veronica didn't ask so much as demand. Yeah, uh that is and and it seems like maybe Betty is more likely to try to use her whatever you would, you know, whatever you would call I feel like there's a name for this in feminist discourse, like the soft power that the women are allowed to exercise. Right. Kind of power behind the throne, power of suggestion. Betty is smarter than Archie, but also in so, his so she has to, Yeah, but she has to work. She has to work out a way for him to feel like he took the initiative. That's right. Exactly. She would never say, she would say, why haven't you asked me to the dance? Which is isomorphic to let's go to the dance. But for some reason, she can say the first thing, but not the second thing. Well, and Archie's a ginger too, which make, which is the number one reason this whole thing it has to be impossible. I'm glad there is still one okay lookist take. Uh, oh, absolutely. You can still be racist against gingers, <laughs> ugly, although we'll get tons of letters. Not ugly people, but. <laughs> so you have, have you ever had the experience of being, like as a young person, were you ever pursued by a, a woman in, in Sadie Hawkins type fashion? Yeah, I mean. I, I, Do you prefer to be the the questing knight? I, I think I would prefer to be asked out, frankly. A hundred percent. When I was in elementary school, I remember a, a girl came up to me on the playground and said that another girl, her friend, uh, wanted to go out with me. And I had never heard that terminology. I moved to Anchorage from Seattle right before fifth grade, Mer- moved permanently. And my upbringing in Seattle was pretty sheltered, right? I looked at at some pictures of my elementary school uh, from kindergarten to fourth grade, and there weren't any children of any other race besides blonde. (laughs) Like, (laughs) honestly, there there was one kid that was like Italian, and everyone else was just the, they were just the whitest, whitest kids. Yeah, because you were raised in the 1870s. I was, I was. I was raised in North Seattle, Shoreline, Washington in the 1970s. Um, but then I moved to Anchorage and suddenly I had tremendous diversity in my school and in my classes. There were native Alaskan kids, there were kids of every race and, and every economic background. Which had not been true in Shoreline. Because it was Alaska was some kind of a magnet, maybe, for people well, of all types looking for work or Yeah, Alaska's the frontier. And so there was just there was it was a place of encounter. There were native Alaskans of every kind, right? There were there were uh Athabascan Indians and Aleuts and Were there Haida? Uh there 
Not in my school. With stone hatchets? Not in my school. Bullying you at recess? We were, they, they, were, they were a more Southern people than Anchorage. But there were also, because of the Air Force and the Army, there were people from all over, and then the oil companies brought people from all over. And so it was, uh, it was also, my, my elementary school, a place of encounter for me. And, um, how had you not heard of going out though? Like how, how had you not seen an episode of love boat or something? I just didn't know the phrase. I mean, I understood. I probably, if she had said go steady, I would have, <laughs> I would have gotten it. But like, she wants to go out with you. And I said, go where? And the little girl that was the messenger laughed, just laughed right in my face. And then that became an anecdote that she went around the playground and said, he said, go where? But that's a reasonable question. Yeah, but not if a, somebody, if I asked somebody out and they said, where would you like to go? I would not think, what a weirdo. I would think, hmm, roller skating, the be, movie theater. But I think it was clear by the way that I answered <laughs> that I didn't know what she was talking about. And I was like, <laughs> she wants to go out where I like, I didn't, I didn't take it as a, as a date uh, offer. It was like, go I, outside, go out to the, we were outside at the time. We well, were on the playground. That's so more I was out like, than the playground. Go out? What do you even mean? Uh, and I did not end up going out with that girl because I became a laughing stock as a result of it. I too have a preference for uh, being told in advance that someone is interested. Hey, Ken. And this is not, uh, I almost think this is probably a majority opinion with men, and yet we're still dealing with the, uh, the this fossilized. Uh, courtship scenario whereby that's not smiled on. It didn't happen and anywhere close to how I would have liked it. And I, and what was way more common in my life was uh, that someone wanted to go out with me and waited for me to ask. And I never did. And they felt, re- they felt rejected. And also I never went out with them, even in cases where I wanted to. This is a common scenario. And I think often the, usually a man realizes decades later, oh, she was, she was really into me. She, wa- she wasn't actually just, she didn't actually just keep touching my shoulder because I had lint or she didn't actually, you know, pretend to take up this hobby, you know, wait, for 10 years she was interested in me. And then at the time somehow. I've written numerous emails to people going, wait a minute, could we have gone out? And they've replied, yes, dummy. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it's one of the missed opportunities. It's, it's real. It's part of the, the trauma that drives me. I feel like it only happened to me once in college where someone, where somebody said, haven't you noticed my roommates totally into you? Right. And the funny, I would have assumed it was a college counselor or your <laughs> a professor, college, the professor, really? <laughs> That's not one of his or her duties. Uh, but this was a case where I had really never had any suspicion or interest, but just hearing that suddenly I was like, Oh, 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 does she (laughs) suddenly I'm interested? Like I was the, I was this harmful trope of the, the, uh, the romantic object that can be pursued and Uh persuaded, you know, the the rom-com thing that has wrecked so much havoc in our culture. The fact that if you're just persistent enough, you can get her to like you. But it turned out, it turned out I am absolutely her. Like, You're like, me? Wow. Oh, all of a sudden I see her. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, we, we did not. And I think she moved or something. It was not my wife. She was, no, she had to be persuaded. Your wife is the first girl you ever kissed. <laughs> first and last. <laughs> the, uh, she was 
not, but she was a girl who didn't was not at all interested in going out with him. What was in fact deploying roommates the way submarines deploy counter measures to yes. like to you know to distract me and dissuade me. Please tell him not to ask me out. Um, but luckily, I had seen Hunt for Red October. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say while we while you were sleeping or something. <laughs> I had seen enough romantic comedies to know that I just needed to persist. My romantic life is 100% uh, dominated by submarine tactics. Yeah, like what Cold War fa- submarine tactics. Yes, except you're just doing the silent caterpillar drive <laughs> yeah, thing. Right. Run the, silent, run deep. And the Russians never find you. <laughs> and eventually you get back to port alone and unloved. Uh, but the, the origin of Sadie Hawkins as a one day a year thing. You, did you have Sadie Hawkins dances? We did have Sadie schools? Hawkins dances in high school. We did too. And in college, because I went, the first two years I went to a, um, to a Jesuit college, uh, which prided itself on still being mostly in the 1950s. So both things, both places we had Sadie Hawkins days and I'm going to, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I'm going to, um, to, to pull down the, uh, the curtain on it and say, I was never asked. I was also never asked. And, I was never at a school where there was much of a culture of it. The Sadie Hawkins dance was theoretically the dance where the girls could ask the guys, but really it never ended up happening. Dances were more go hang out with your friends and ask who you were standing near to dance. Yeah. Lean against the wall until someone like feels so guilty, so forced. I like lean against the wall and the girls would lean against the other wall and stare at you and then look away and you'd be like, I don't know why she's staring at me. That's it's all it is a it, they're literally battle lines like yeah. the battle of the sexes literally had sides like a Shelby foot diagram of a civil war battle one and, wall of the gym and the other wall of the gym right and then in the middle there were the like the brave or shameless kids that were like dancing ugh Who do they, what do they think they're doing I really feel terrible even thinking at, at about it yeah no one ever has how come no one has good memories from high school dances I'm thinking back they should to be banned. Yeah, right. I mean, high school dance. I mean, later, I guess in high school when I had a good group of friends and we all went to the dance together, uh, boys and girls, mm-hmm. it was easier then because we, you know, I had five lady friends that we could dance with one another and it didn't, it wasn't weird. But like, I started going to dances in seventh grade. I remember leaning against the wall. I can remember the songs. They played Another One Bites the Dust. They played Working in a Coal Mine. Wait, work, wait, what? <laughs> by Devo. Uh, I mean, like, I, I remember the playlist very distinctly because I was leaning against the wall just in total mortification. And the music was something I could, like, focus on. Also, how do you dance to Another One Bites the Dust? <laughs> do, or, do, do, do. Yeah. <laughs> those, another One Bites. Those are, like, both songs for an assembly line. Yeah, <laughs> 1984 style, like uh, dystopian. They might have even played um, "We Don't Need No Education," right? Like, but it was a weird time, a weird time in music. Yeah, when Pink Floyd is dance music, it's a weird time. Yeah, uh, the origin of the Sadie Hawkins dance actually is in universities. It started there and percolated down to high schools, but it all begins with. Uh, what used to be the center of American mass culture, the newspaper comic page. Oh, yeah. Now, you and I are on the record as being fans of the newspaper comic. Oh, man. I, I can't, I cannot uh, overstate how much the newspaper itself and also the comics 
influenced me and shaped me. And anyone five years younger than us thinks we're crazy. We, yeah. we were the tail end of, of that, of the newspaper's arrival being an event and having specific pages where we knew where our stuff was. Yes. You can't start your homework before you've read Broomhilda right. or, or done the jumble or checked the, the Sonics box score. I mean, I, I had many newspaper-related traditions related to whatever I was interested at the time. Maybe for some kids it's stock prices or... I only just now, as you said it, get that Broomhilda was Brunhilda. <laughs> I never, ever put that together until the, this very second. But she's a witch, you see. She's a witch. Broomhilda was actually created by a cartoonist named Elliot Kaplan, who suggested it to Russell Myers, who ended up drawing the strip. And Elliot Kaplan was the brother of Alfred Gerald Kaplan. Al, uh, Al Cap? Better known in his cartooning life as Al Cap. No kidding. Do you have any memory of Al Cap's Absolutely. work? Absolutely. Uh, I've seen, I think, on your wall, uh, uh, on your uh, amazing wall of media, the, uh, some Al Cap uh, omnibuses. I don't think I have any Al Cap books, although I do have many of the cartoonists, you know, his contemporaries like Milton Caniff and others he influenced, like right. Walt Kelly of Pogo. But he was... Oh, you're a Pogo consumer. I huge, know that about huge you. Pogo fan. Uh, it was a way to trick little children into embracing leftist politics by having... Uh, bears and ducks and, and washing bears <laughs> tell them that McCarthy was bad. So Al Cap drew little Abner and you're saying his, his, his brother was, uh, did Broomhilda? He, uh, his brother was better known for the heart of Juliet Jones. One of these soap cartoons that oh, I, yeah. that I never read. No, I didn't read that. Why either. didn't we read those? Well, I guess, they weren't in the newspaper. They oh, weren't in my newspaper. Well, we had apartment three G and maybe uh, Mary Worth. Didn't I know, we? but we, I had both of those, but reading them is just such a slog. Like nothing ever happens. That's really the problem. The first two, there's always three panels. The first two summarize the previous day's strip. Right. And then one is like, and then the phone rings. And then Mary's thought balloon is like, who could that be? Who could that be? Right. And you're like, ugh, Even, just, there's no jokes. There's no. And we were okay with slow moving entertainment then. Yeah. We watched Mr. Rogers, but this was too slow even for Gen X. Well, I, I would watch Bloom County stories unfold over the course of a month and a half, but at least they're, you know, at least the penguin slipped on a banana peel. I feel like Peter, the Spider-Man strip that Stan yeah. Lee drew was the only serialized strip I actually drew because you thought something might happen and it really rarely did some bank robbers yeah, or yeah. something. But you're absolutely right. The, the newspaper arriving on the porch was an event when it wasn't there. It threw the entire day into a, sideways state and i immediately went through the newspaper and gathered the things that mattered to me and and read them as soon as possible and without them the day felt a little bit empty there would be family disagreements over who had which page that's right and who got it first my mom and i were very good about we would sit together and she would be reading one section i'd be reading the other and we would then trade sections, often without looking at each other. You and your mom are a 70-year-old married couple at, we, some, at some Upper East Side <laughs> diner. We really were. Uh, but I did check the stocks because when I was, I think maybe in sixth grade, uh, my mom bought me st two stocks, and one of them was in a company called Instrument Systems. It seems fake. And Instrument Systems made some instruments. And I'm guessing also some systems. They did, and it was space-related, mm. space travel-related. And it, they were, it was a penny stock, and I got 100 shares, and it was, you know, 100 shares for whatever, $10. Uh, but I More like a dime stock, then. It was a little bit of a dime stock. 
I and it and it fluctuated. I remember, I looked at it every day, and it fluctuated between ten and fifteen cents a share for years. And I would I would go to that stock page, and I would find Instrument Systems, and I was waiting for it to shoot up to a hundred dollars a share. At which point, I would be rich. And eventually, Instrument Systems fell apart. I guess the, the company just delisted. Delisted and didn't. Oh. I don't think it. I mean, surely you're going to look it up today. right now and find out <laughs> that it is SpaceX and that you're a billionaire, and then you're not going to do the show anymore. <laughs> Instrument Systems. Oh, there is a company called Instrument Systems. It says here they it's bring piano tuners. They bring quality to life. No, it's a uh, it's a German optical company. Um, That's not it, as interesting as space it, travel. Here's their here's their slogan. Discover, oh, it changed. The slogan they, changed? No, they have one of these terrible uh, the websites where it's just like, ugh, they were showing me the first one and then, oh, wait. No, their slogan is, we bring quality to light. Finally, somebody's bringing quality to light. Innovative light measurement technology. Okay, so, I, and it looks like this is the same logo, so maybe. Wow, they're oh, still around? Oh, it's part of the Konica Minolta group. So it's, yeah. It got, it bought. got bought out. Well, then maybe you have a huge share in, uh, well, Minolta, another probably not very successful <laughs> Sure, company. but it's, it's possible that the stock has split like 500 times, and I'm, yeah, you're right, I'm a wealthy guy now. Somebody's somebody's crisscrossing Alaska trying to find, <laughs> is there a John Roderick still here? <laughs> Waving this stock certificate in the air. The You really can't overstate how many just regular parts of daily life were impossible without a printed newspaper. Yeah. There was no other way to know what was on TV. The if, weather. There was no other way to know if it would rain tomorrow. There was no other way to know what time the movie was if you were going to go to a movie. It was the only way to know what the breaking news was until the 7 o'clock news. That's right. Or the 6 o'clock news. For tomorrow's marketing, you would want to, you, you know, you whoever was doing the shopping would be looking at that to see if flank steak was going to be on sale at which mm-hmm. store. Sports. Sports. You you might not have known what happened in the East Coast games until and and the kids are just so thirsty. A certain kind of kid at least is just so thirsty for data yeah. that you know you would just enjoy looking at stock numbers. And yeah. and I would enjoy looking at baseball box scores. What age were you when you started doing the crossword? I feel like me and my dad did the jumble every night when I was like six years old. Uh-huh. But there was also, there was the crossword and the bridge column. And for some reason, the Seattle Times had that weird word search yeah. that, where you were not allowed to circle the words, but you had to put an individual circle around each letter. Yeah. That we uh, had that in Anchorage. Yeah. We never, I never did that. Did you read the bridge column? No, it was mysterious. I, I tried to read it, assuming that if I read the bridge column every day, that I would learn bridge and and I never understood a <laughs> word of it, but I continued to read it. It was just like, you know, Margie, uh, trumps her across the hearts and, you know, and does a trick of, and we, I was just like, what? <laughs> we need to do newspaper bridge columns at some point because it's the kind of thing where there was never a critical mass of people wanting that chess was always more popular than bridge, but there was never a chess column. Some historical accident put, contract bridge in the newspaper next to the comics for decades for decades and no one no one ever wanted it or explained why and it's time to bring those people to justice i swear to you i read it every day (laughs) i'm just thinking about the all the lost time do you know what i really enjoy john what do you enjoy ken i enjoy these addenda entries we've been recording yeah we just got done we just got done doing an addenda and it really um they really stand on their own it's fun because we have managed to have create this 
group of thousands of people who just do the work for us. Mm-hmm. They and all have uh, they all have things they want to add to our show. They all have shows. fun, interesting expertise and stories, and they you know you want to talk back to the podcast, right. and of course you can, or you'll look like an idiot on the train. But now they can. They're they're suggesting their own material, and in the addenda episode, we can we can share those to a to an audience in this time period and beyond. Sometimes we argue with them, but most of the time their additions are relevant and and quite interesting. And we're certainly respectful. That's right. Well, yeah, mostly. Mostly. Uh, but we, but they they lead us to sometimes go uh, go off on a different aspect of an episode we've done. Yeah, they're they're kind of freewheeling in a way that, you know, with Omnibus we're usually trying to get back to the story because we're trying to you know, finish educating the future on whatever happened to this uh, French foreign minister or whatever. And here uh, we can just say whatever and we can just start randomly Googling facts. You were, you wanted to know how long a $5 bill lasted. So we looked it up. Five years. 4.9 years or something. Uh, Uh, But these are available only to people who subscribe to our Patreon, which involves some sort of contribution to the production of the show. Yes, we have multiple tiers, and at any tier from $5 up, which would be all the tiers, uh, you get immediate access at the end of every month to a new addenda episode, some of which are like getting up to an hour in length. That's right. How long was that last one? Was it close uh, to an hour? Yeah, it was uh, 50 minutes, I think, worth of us going, going from episode to episode and kind of dealing with our viewer mail. So uh, a whole new, really a regular-sized bonus omnibus entry every month if you uh, if you have the resources and, and choose to support the show. And at different uh, tiers of our Patreon, you're, there are other you have other benefits, right? Uh, d- name some benefits at different tiers. At the ten dollar uh, tier, you get access to our as well as the addenda episode. You get access to our image feed where we post show notes. Um, funny things people have sent us, you and I clowning around. Our show notes are hilarious. They're illegible. All uh, right. But let's not let's not downplay how good they are since we do want people to donate. But there are tons of goofs. Uh, you know, right now I'm sitting here with the um with the Jeopardy trophy greatest of all time. It's sitting for some reason over here on my side of the desk. For some reason. And on top of it, it has a little statue of a Basque or Catalonian boy taking a poop. Now you're not going to know what that symbolizes, what that comes from, unless you're a su- subscriber. And this is a photograph that we'll post on our image. At the, at the $20 tier, you get a signed copy of one of our show notes. We are, I'm going to make you, I have brought a Sharpie and I'm going to make you sign those today. Oh, we're going to send them to people in the mail. Yes, we are sending them out worldwide. Wow, how exciting. For them. Yeah. Uh, well, and for you, if you like signing sure, I things. I like signing things. Uh, for $50, these, 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 high, these high tiers are very uh, aspirational. Sure, they're, they're specific to people that, that have um, have a little bit more money to share. Well, and they're specific to people who, like, you know, could just as easily hear the show for free, but enjoy the feeling of support and community, yeah, I guess. right. At the $50 level, you get to choose a show topic oh. that goes to the top of our heap. And we just got our first... Uh, Request today from from Krista, who uh, has two ideas that she'd like us to do. I'm excited to hear them. And at the hundred dollar level, John and I will actually come to your house and do some chores. Yeah, that's right. We I will be a human Roomba. <laughs> we will uh, put me in a closet, and we will actually do a, a, a like a 
video chat. Yeah. At the $100 level. That's a lot of money, though. I yeah, really, I don't see, I, the, on no level is that worth it. Again, it's just about the feeling of, I don't know, of support and community that people feel. A video chat with somebody? It's probably going to be MC Hammer's kids or somebody that we're going to talk to. Where would they get the money? Hundred. Oh, oof. Ouch. MC Hammer burn. Because the newspaper was such a family event, the comics were huge. Yeah. And even more so in the early 20th century when newspapers were big and there were lavishly printed color adventures. And so on Sunday morning, you would spread it out on the floor and you would want to know what happened to Buck Rogers next or or Prince Valiant or or Little Nemo or whoever. And it was really the equivalent of Technicolor movies, widescreen movies before, you know, decades before that was a thing. Do you remember when the comics page expanded to two pages? I feel like my whole life is just comics contraction, getting smaller and smaller as the paper shrunk. When I was little, the comics page was a page. And then during the big boom of comics, like newspaper comics in the 80s, mm-hmm. when it seemed like uh, it was a it, – it had become a thing that like a regular it was Jim funny Davis. It was Jim Davis making – Garfield. $100 million in Garfield and suddenly – You had yeah. – well, and Doonesbury had such a uh, – profound effect on the culture at large, or at least, you know, like counterculture. I feel like every paper I read had Doonesbury actually on the op-ed page. So that happened at it. And that might be an entry in the omnibus. When, when Doonesbury went to the op-ed page, I think that was also an eighties thing. Although Bloom County got to stay. Yeah. Because well, it, it had silliness in with its Casper Weinberger jokes. And, and Bloom County was, you know, just like a pretty cheap, Doonesbury ripoff, yep. but I think it was during the Reagan administration that Doonesbury, uh, you know, got so oh. focused on on the Reagan administration that people complained. Well, it was also increasingly out of touch with the with the times. It's it's kind of a relic of of late sixties college life, right? And suddenly it's morning in America, and nobody wants that next to Croc and Hagar the Horrible, right? Like Zonker became hard to explain. In 1975, Zonker was somebody that you, that everybody had a brother that was Zonker. I think Mike Doonesbury became a yuppie. Like he really he did, did 80, yeah. 80s fi the strip. He had an Asian wife, Mike Doonesbury. As was the style at the time. That's right. Uh, so the comics page was, and we think of that as the boom in our lifetime, but there was a bigger boom in the early 20th century when, you know, people would read, where cartoonists were public intellectuals and public entertainers and public successes, glowing articles written about how now that uh, uh, Steve Canyon is in this many papers, this cartoonist is now making uh, $10,000 a week. Like they were making just insane amounts of mid-century money by drawing because, you know, they they had the the syndicates had the newspapers by the – by the short hairs, like people needed to know what was going to happen to Steve Canyon. Is this pre or post Charles Schultz? A lot of this is pre. Uh, you know, Peanuts starts in the mid fifties or, or early to mid fifties, and, and this kind, is thirties. Yeah, and it kind of that kind of reshapes the comics page around funny, simply drawn stuff that can get shrunk down as paper costs go up. Uh, but before then, it was a lot of kind of lavishly drawn. Uh, and it was your daily check-in. It was your equivalent of of your uh, your your TV show in in the pre television era. Right, the you, Phantom. You would want to know what Mandrake and the Phantom were doing. I loved the Phantom. That stuff uh, persisted into my life. There was a Saturday morning show, I guess, just because the comic syndicate still had so much leftover muscle. But the Phantom was a serial that that was fun or was exciting because the Phantom did. 
he was genuinely in adventures and not just not just a like dabbing a wet hanky. I want to do the Phantom in um, the Omnibus at some point because it's extremely popular in some southeast, some part of Southeast Asia. Huh. There's some New Guinea or something is fascinated with the Phantom, and I, I don't know why this is, but I want to get to the bottom of it. But uh, but none of these names were bigger than Al Cap, who. Um, you know, based on some experiences in his youth, hitchhiking around the American South and Appalachia, and Appalachia uh, created... Or Appalachia. Didn't we get an we angry get, letter? People get mad at us when we say Appalachia <laughs> the way you say, if you can read. Uh, based on his experiences, he created a strip called Lil Abner about a kind of a dim-witted country boy in his tiny backwoods, you know, a hillbilly community called Dog Patch. And it started out as just kind of a, a novelty. And I believe this predates what we've entered into the omnibus before is the, the fascination with hillbilly culture in the in the 50s on American television, you know, the Beverly yeah. Hillbillies and, right. and so forth. I think without Lil Abner, you might not get any of that. Um, because this was a novelty for people to see these, these uh, rough-hewn yokels in their bizarre backwoods ways. And, and is this? I mean, I, I'm I'm wondering whether there's a component of that uh, that became kind of a fascination because of because of the um, you know the Works Progress Administration era of Tennessee Valley Authority and also uh, the capturing of some of that hillbilly music on uh, you know by early wax cylinders yeah, and uh, Alan Lomax and the Lomax uh, music and then. That tra- that translating into that mid-century country and Western music, which had, which mm-hmm. evolved out of some of that work. Also, it would not really have been possible, even maybe fifty years earlier, to captivate America with this novel look at people living in little wooden houses because that was everybody's life. Right. It was only once, like cities became the center of American discourse, that it was possible to be like, can you imagine? These they're all farmers in the mountains, right? This is, they, I bet they have funny ways. Yeah, feuds even. They do. Um, and this, so the strip started out as kind of a simplistic uh, thing about Lil Abner and his colorful friends and uh, Daisy May Scruggs, the beautiful young, you know, kind of the prototype for a Daisy Duke type. Cap often said he invented the miniskirt, who's always chasing Abner. Yeah, Lil, uh, da- Daisy was always improbably pretty given what everyone else on the strip Look, like. everyone else is realistically inbred. Yeah, but and that's that's a, a trope that persisted to this day. In so far as we still have hillbilly art, that the men are are big galoots, but there's always just some, you know, knockout woman in her in her simple country. Whereas I'm sure that honestly, that's probably a, a a fantasy that goes back to feudalism. You know the. The pretty village girl that you can ride in on your steed in and, and ride and impress. Do what you will. Her last name really was Yoakum. Daisy May Yoakum well, was who she, who she married. Right. She her, married Abner Yoakum. Right. Her yeah. initial her initial uh, last name was Scrag, which I think was Yokel plus Hokum. Right. Uh, but then Dwight Yoakum actually exists now. It's like country country fried cartoon characters are emerging into real life and nobody noticed. Huh. It's crazy. That is crazy. Maybe Dwight Yoakam was actually named like Dwight um, Penobscot. Yeah, Slipovitz, and uh, changed his name. Yeah, but her, uh, like Mammy's original name was Pansy Hunks. <laughs> I had no idea. 
Yeah. Pansy hunks. Pansy hunks. Do you have, I have no memories of reading Lil Abner. It, uh, he wrapped it up in the mid seventies and it was, I believe it was rare in that it's not a strip that continued under different hands. I did. I do remember it from the newspaper and it was always kind of unintelligible to me. I didn't understand the, I mean, you know, 1975, I was seven. I was deep in the comics page, but I think it was, it was little Abner was sort of trailing off by that point, just sort of regurgitating a lot of the, the sort of tropes and, and, um, it, 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 those strips accumulate just decades of trips, and as we'll see, their own language yeah. that shapes the culture. But as a seven-year-old in, in the early 70s, you're not going to... It was like Snuffy Smith. You know, there were these comics where you, you're just like, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. or how, wh- why why do, It's like the bridge column. Why does this exist? Yeah, but, and why does it exist every day? It has its own square footage. It yeah. has, it has a, a place in the world. And yet, why? I never laughed. I never cried. Uh, the early, I never skipped it. Uh, exactly. You still have to read them. <laughs> yeah. That's a funny thing about kids reading these paperbacks. And this still happens, even though the comic page is gone. Kids, y- your daughter went through a Garfield phase. No, she's in it still. My kids had Calvin and Hobbes and Farside and, uh, Peanuts phases where you will just read these dog-eared paperbacks over and over, either actually laughing or starting out with, ha ha ha, this must be a joke. And then kind of learning to laugh at them. Yeah. It's where kids learn about humor it is. for generations. My daughter will still sidle up to me out of nowhere and say, want to hear a Garfield joke? And then she and does. do you? Yeah. And she, I always say yes. And she does the thing where she recounts a comic strip. So Garfield's sitting on a table. John L- walks luckily in. Luckily, there's not a lot of stage directions in Garfield. <laughs> yeah. It's not a big, it's not a broad canvas. John walks in and he's carrying a turkey. And, you know, and she she sets it up and 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 then delivers the punch. You can, I think we may have said this on the show before, but I can still see them in my head decades later. You can remember every word of the strip somehow. Like, it really takes on a life in your head. Something about the, uh, the juxtaposition of the panels yeah. really comes to life in a kid's head in a weird way. Uh, so Al Cap Strip, which started out as kind of n- n- regular hillbilly satire, uh, a reg- you know, regular hillbilly slice of life becomes uh, becomes actual satire with uh, takes on the affairs of the day and characters that become coded for different societal forces. And it's really what gives us Pogo, which keeps the rural setting, and then eventually Doonesbury. Like I think without Al Cap, you, he's pr- he's really the first cartoonist to grapple with. With the headlines, essentially, ripped from Mm -hmm. the headlines. You know, if once Sinatra becomes a a popular crooner, there's a Sinatra character called Hal Fashionata in the strip, (laughs) coming to Dogpatch and wooing all the women. And Sinatra loved it. And once Liberace is popular, there's kind of a flamboyant pianist named Lover Boynick. And Liberace was not into this. Oh, really? Yeah. He didn't Um, like being satirized? Did it look like Liberace? Yeah, it was. It's clearly Liberace, and I wonder if if you're a closeted Liberace in the '50s, if you don't like exaggerated versions of yourself, because at some point somebody's going to say, "Wait a second. But he was. But he's Lover Boisky, Lover Boynick, Lo- Lover Boynick. So he's he's yes. being depicted as a heterosexual. Well, there's a weird thing where <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to say this in a way that makes sense or will get us angry letters. But there's a weird thing where um, the the mid-century idea of the sissy mm-hmm. somehow coalesces both what we would call today a nice shy gay boy. You know, he's a sissy because he doesn't want to fight or do sports. Right. But and the sissy who um who's kind of a moony lovestruck kid that's always picking posies for his girl. Right. right? <laughs> like like the sissy is both extremely gay and extremely straight. 
And I don't, uh, it's like no one was familiar enough with homosexuality to actually put their finger on that pulse and say, well, this doesn't make sense at all. But, you know, but the, but straight and yet always vulnerable to the muscle man uh, kicking sand in his face. (laughs) Like there, there was not yet a, uh, the, the option of being a goth, right? But you could be a poet. Yes. You could be a, you could be a sort of, not an Oscar Wilde, but a but a, a romantic. Yes, and you're always carrying a, bo- a heart shaped box of candy for for your girl, and right. you've, you've written sheaves of love notes to her. Right. And you know, this is I was going to say this was something that faded away as we wised up to how that didn't make sense. But honestly, I still see it today online. You know, um, kind of these alpha MRI ty- MRA types, not MRI types. I'd, although I would like to see an MRI. Uh, <laughs> that you know, they put up pictures of of Prince Harry, for example going from, to them, a strong beret-wearing British fighting man into this cock who mm. gets led around by his American wife. Or, yeah. Who, you know, and, she's, now, and she's not white, which is, I'm sure, a big part of their psychosis around this. Right. Um, but really, the, the implication is, look how, this, look how gay this guy got by marrying a beautiful TV star. <laughs> 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 Fellas, is it gay to marry a beautiful woman? I mean, I remember wanting much more to be Byron than to be a sports hero. You were a poet kid. Yeah, but I but I didn't want to get... And shocker, you became a, a sensitive indie rocker. Can you imagine? I don't believe it. But I'm also big and, uh, uh, dare get, I say, strong. Were you getting recruited for all these teams and you were like, no way, coach, I, uh, I just love Keats? De- definitely... <laughs> Definitely got, you know, the army recruiters really liked me, but I, I didn't, I, you know, when I That's would something re- that makes football look safe. So keep that in mind. <laughs> when I looked back, when I, when I would get to the end of a comic book and there would be that George Atlas ad in the back where the, the, the skinny kid got sand kicked in his mm. face, I had very strong, a very strong reaction to that. And it was, it was twofold. One was I was chubby. So I wished I was skinny. I wish I, I couldn't imagine somebody being sad they were skinny because right. I had I had internalized that I was husky. Oh, it does a number on kids just to hear once that they they're chubby. And yeah, then it just changes their self image. And you. then it's just like, well, how could you be mad that you were skinny? And I still, you know, when people complain about like, oh, I'm so skinny, I can't put it on any weight. I'm it's, always like, Urgh. you know, in our time, it's okay to just punch that person. Yeah, that's true. But the other thing was, I was terrified of having sand kicked in my face. Like, literally, you thought that might, the, the Charles Atlas ad had convinced you this was a real thing that might happen? Yeah, that I would be- In Alaska? That I would be, well, not, <laughs> get, it'd, it'd be snow. snow. Kicked in your it'd face. be snow, and I did get snow kicked in my face. You know, one of the, the, one of the, the, uh, the dangers of being a kid in Alaska is that you're going to get whitewashed. And whitewashing that is. was when a bunch of- boys tackled you in the snow and they stuffed snow down the front of your shirt and down the front of your pants and they would push your face in the snow and whitewash you. And I got whitewashed a lot until I had my growth spurt, right? Ninth grade, eighth grade, seventh grade, I was smaller than other kids and I just got punished. And then, um, I think in 11th grade, I went from five, six to six feet tall in you went from zero to hero. Yeah, it did. You've Pretty, gone from goofus to gallon. Like in six months, you know, just like my bones were just like, duh, 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 duh. and then I stopped getting whitewashed. And I think for the first, maybe first year. For the first year, you whitewashed other smaller boys relentlessly. No, I didn't understand that I had grown. 
<laughs> you know, in my head, I was still small. Right. We always think we're the same. And I didn't, I didn't understand why I wasn't getting picked on anymore. The, uh, you know, so Al Cap became really funny, not just a cartoon figure, but by consensus, even in, among public intellectuals, the greatest satirist of his day. And now it was Steinbeck loved him. Marshall McLuhan loved him. Eventually, Updike loves him. Everybody just agrees that this guy is doing fantastic work. Because, and was he a New York Jewish guy? A poor Jewish kid from New Haven, Connecticut. So, you know, out I, in the sticks from in the tri-state area. But, right. But, uh, but Proximate yeah, de- to Yale. But definitely one of these kids who became a um, kind of a starving artist, uh, you know, found he had a knack, realized art school might not pay, and then suddenly read in the papers that whoever Hal Foster is making $3,000 a week drawing Prince Valiant, and it changes his life. Right. He's living in an artist garret in Hell's Kitchen that now is a $7,000 a month studio apartment. So he wasn't actually a hillbilly in any way, but you know, by introducing the tropes of American culture of the day into the strip, um, he became a celebrity. He had, in addition to his having the most popular comic strip in America, he had a newspaper column. He had a radio show every week on 500 stations. He was the only mid 20th century cartoonist who was just on TV all the time. Wow. He had like five different talk shows over the course of his life, like he's Mike Douglas or something. What, really? And he was always on The Tonight Show. He was one of these kind of permanent guests, like the way, uh, you know, what's her, what's her name Rivers. for the zoo? Uh, you know, the- Oh, right, the- The, zoo, uh, the zookeeper guy. Yeah. And, and yeah, and Joan, all these people who, who you'd never heard of, except that they were on with Johnny every three weeks. Uh, that was Al Cap. And Lil Abner stayed a hit. It was- uh, a pretty big Broadway show in the fifties and eventually a movie considering how much it's gone down the memory hole. I assume because that kind of, first of all, it was very topical and also that kind of look at rural America is no longer fashionable. Right. Um, it's weird to imagine that it was one of the biggest pop culture properties of the time. Everybody knew, uh, Al Cap. Basically Beverly Hillbillies was an Al Cap, um, it, 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 he in, he invented the genre. Yeah, the riff of the, and if you watch Hee Haw and you see the the cute girls in their scanty overalls and the, I mean this all comes straight from tropes right. in his strip. The funny thing is his politics did change over this period as as he's a satirizing America in the strip. He's getting older, and of course, like you with your eye he doesn't realize he's changed. Sure, he thinks of himself as consistent. He he's always thought that he roots for the underdog. And part of that, a lot of it just dates back to being a kid. He was run over by a trolley. We've talked about trolley accidents, mm-hmm. I think. He, maybe I mentioned him. He was run over by a trolley and lost a leg as a child. He was one-legged he through was all this? He was America's best one-legged cartoonist. <laughs> wow. So he had a prosthetic and a limp, and it really colored his, you know, imagine that happening to you at that age where yeah. you're so conscious of, of, of differences. And it made him root for the underdog. So he was a New Deal Democrat, loved FDR, and, and early Al Caps are always full of really scathing portrayals of the military industrial complex, you know, a, a general bull moose and Jay Roaringham fatback, all these kind of tycoons that the government is always throwing pork at awful, awful fat cats. But by the sixties, he's gotten a little older and he thinks now rooting for the underdog means that the, these grubby hippies have taken over and he right. needs to stand up for middle-aged white men and the police 
and the U.S. Department of Defense. Sure, and mailmen. Su- supporters of the Vietnam War. Like on every position, he, he, he sees himself as being internally consistent. Sure. But really, he has turned his, his, his gimlet eye on youth culture. My dad was a socialist in the 30s and 40s and 50s, like a radical, and yet was on the wrong side of the Vietnam War for a long time. It like, he, like he fought with the Viet Cong. Uh, no, <laughs> no, he was, you know, World War II veteran. So he had, it had sure. never occurred to him that the U.S. military wasn't an agent of justice and truth. We're fighting in Asian jungles just like then. And yep. it's going to, it's going to, it's going to liberate these people. And I think it was 1969 or something before, and, I, and it was my mom that, uh, that finally convinced my dad to turn on Vietnam. Cap never came around. I think he lived near... Uh, he lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He lived, you know, born in New Haven, ended up near Cambridge. So he was always near college culture and hated it. He uh, he would go from, you know, he would speak on campuses and he would start getting protested and he would thrive on it. He would put out books and albums where grubby hippies are yelling at him on the cover. He uh, got sued in the 60s for putting Joan Baez in his strip as Joni Phony. Whoa. A limousine liberal who pretends to be down with the underclass, but is actually a huge fake. And Joan Baez sued him. What? And it, for slander? Yeah, it went to court for defamation, and a judge said no. You know, satire. You know, there were still a lot of important test cases about satire that had yet to be worked out. Right. And so, you know, Al Cap being told it's okay to call Joan Baez Joni Phony in the paper, we we understand that as a given, but uh, it it went to court. And this was a cultural divide that uh, that ended up being adjudicated just um, in in the court of public opinion as the boomers got older they just sort of took over critical mass but i remember right, all the yeah i mean i remember Joan fonda with her with her hand up in the air and just uh and the adults around me going there's a line and that crosses it he uh, probably the mo- his his most famous moment of his grumpy old man period have you ever seen the uh, the movie Ima- the john lennon movie imagine no, is this where he's playing a white piano and the and, well, the and the windows are all open? That's in the video. That's the video. Is that in the movie? He uh, it might be from the movie. One of the scenes is a bed in that John and Yoko do in Montreal. I've where seen all that. Footage. They're just of course everybody's seen this, and they're gonna they're gonna stay in bed and and let reporters come in until the war in Vietnam ends. And one of the reporters that gets shown in is Al Cap, who just wants to yell at him. Really? So there's a very testy exchange in the movie. Where he's just being like, oh, yeah, nice job being naked on the cover, you guys. Everyone really wanted to see your pubic hair. Hey, Yoko, how do you put up with this loser? Until finally, like, Derek Taylor tries to kick him out of the room. And John's like, no, no, let him stay, you know. And, but, but Lennon gets more and more pissed off at this, this sideburned American cartoonist. Right. Just getting in his face and, and, and feeling guy. like he's representing American values against this new onslaught and he still thinks of himself as a good liberal even even as he hates ted kennedy and spiro agnew's trying to recruit him to run for the senate and he's giving you know 500 luncheons for jack kemp uh so he becomes a as a public figure he becomes a, you know a very public conservative and increasingly kind of out of step with what you'd expect of the greatest satirist of his era i guess we think of that era at where, where the democratic party or the left is still dominated by organized labor mm-hmm. and organized labor also became more and more conservative as as the years went on so i mean that's yeah you're right organized labor is the factor that keeps a lot of these it's not just the south that's a factor that keeps a lot of these um 
kind of working class conservative guys in the Democratic Party and allows for the Republicans to have their own kind of Rockefeller types where the, the two parties are much less ideological and more tribal without ideology, I guess. Yeah, it's strange to think that now organized labor, we think of it as breaking right, even though the whole principle of organizing labor is it was leftist. Well, I mean, <laughs> way worse than Leno. It was yeah. it was beyond the pale when yeah. it was first suggested. It, 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 it involved a lot of like it's Marxist. Bo- of bomb throwing and and uh, and strike breaking. We should note in the era of Me Too, we should note that Al Cap also had his issues with this. You know, he on many college campuses, uh, he was apparently. Was he a groper? Groping and propositioning women. Yeah. And one of these went to court, I think, in, I don't know where, Wisconsin, maybe. Uh, and after his, after his time, many of the beautiful young women that he came up against as a celebrity revealed that he had really come up against them. And both Grace Kelly and Goldie Hawn said he had exposed himself to really? them. Really? Yeah. So, which kind of plays into... A fraudager. <laughs> yes, a fraudageur. <laughs> And they were not fraudages. It kind of plays into the gender politics of of what we're about to learn about Sadie Hawkins, because the the little Abner strip had a ton of cultural legacies that mean nothing to us today. But anybody ten years older than us would immediately know that Fearless Fosdick. If you say Fearless Fosdick or Joe, they would know. Oh, one is the Dick Tracy knockoff in uh, and Little Abner, and one is the character that always has the rain cloud over his head. So I know Fearless Fosdick um, because he was further satirized in the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, right. which was the uh, which was the counterculture comic that I found, you know, buried in my older brother's um, effects comics with an X and uh, that has drug slang and nudity. Right. So I so it was referencing that they were referencing. Fearless Fosdick. And it's, it's just a Dick, it's a clear Dick Tracy character. It looks almost exactly like him, but it was so well known that you could parody Fearless Fosdick instead of Dick Tracy. Right, right. Uh, and some of the things he, he mentioned we still have with us today. Double whammy, apparently, is a usage that comes from Lil Abner. Oh. It really just shows how per, per, uh, pervasive the comics page was that, you know, we still have so much American language that came out of, you know, to call somebody a milk toast comes from... A comics page, really words like Jeep, even I think even Zap comes from Buck Rogers, right? Um, Lower Slobovia, which we still kind of use for. Uh, I say that all the time. <laughs> what do you use it for? Like a, a place that's hard, that's far away in Seattle, or like a, a benighted part of the world? Or? I always say that I'm uh, that I'm from Lower Slobovia. It's my. Uh, it's like a whatever a, a natural sort of description of of like. How I live in Slobovia, it, but for your for you, it's a um, it's like a psychic Slobovia. You you're in a Slobovia of the mind, or yeah. Well, you know the the root cause the being path. slob. Oh, I see. So uh, Slobovia, and I think that actually, um, it's a reference. Lower Slobovia or Slobovia is referenced in the movie Making the Grade, which was a <laughs> 1984 Judd Nelson vehicle. That I saw in theaters, and this is Judd Nelson pre-Breakfast Club. We have talked about making the grade before, I think. Have like, we? This, I think this movie kind of looms large in your youth. It does. It was, uh, it was first of all, the movie that introduced Andrew Dice Clay. Mm. He, he, had not, he had not existed prior to this in the culture. We hadn't been introduced. We, we just thought nursery rhymes were like, 
he stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum. Right. We, we didn't realize we it could be nasty. We were like, well, we didn't know if what could happen in that pie. And Andrew Dice Clay plays his Andrew Dice Clay character fully formed in this movie. I think it was he was he was already doing this as a as a comedy routine and got cast. His character name is Dice. But it's a classic movie where Judd... It's, it's uh, not a classic movie. <laughs> making the, the, the plot is that there's a preppy guy who needs to graduate from college, otherwise his dad is going to disown him. But he's, a, he's, a, he's like a playboy and he doesn't want to do any work. So he hires Judd Nelson, who's a kid from the streets, to, uh, to masquerade as him at the college and do his work and when he graduates he, he's going to give him ten thousand dollars or something and then the preppy kid what an unlikely s- setup i know what a funny what a ripe comic scenario and so judd nelson this guy from you know the inner city is at this rich preppy school and it's a culture clash but at one point the uh the the preppy kid is just hanging out in the dorm and the proctor or the principal comes in and says have i seen you before are you a student here and he says i'm an exchange student from slobovia and in 1984, I thought that was hilarious and uh, jump for joy. I think in Lil Abner, Loris Lobovia starts out in the 40s and 50s as kind of a, a European backwater, maybe kind of behind the Iron Curtain, vaguely Slavic. Right, probably Baltic. Right. Yeah, maybe. Or, or Balkan. Yes, ball something. Yes. One of the two. One of the two balls of oh, Europe. Let's say Balkan. I like how Europe has two balls. Yeah, that does. And then there's but a, they're widely separated. And then there's a continent, <laughs> like a shaft-like continent, extending westward from them. Uh, he also gave us the schmooze. Oh. If you can imagine those kind of white whiskered, the schmoo bowling pin-like blobs that lived in a nearby valley. It was a very fanciful strip. I'm so embarrassed at at being so connected to this strip and not really realizing it because I had a schmoo. The schmoo I had a stuffed on. schmoo. I feel like they put the schmoo on Saturday morning with the Flintstones or yeah. Jetsons or something. I mean, people listening to this show are like, these boomers are so old. Okay, But boomer. I was not a boomer. I was a child, but I, I had a schmoo and I didn't even understand what a schmoo was. His pro- of, of all these gifts Lil Abner gave to the popular culture just by virtue of persistence of being in everybody's eyeball once a day for almost 50 years. Uh, none is more powerful than the one that began early in the strip, uh, mid-November 1937. Um, Cap starts teasing Sadie Hawkins Day, a dog patch ceremony that really Al Cap is, or Lil Abner is scared of little, but, uh, but Sadie Hawkins Day puts the fear of God into him. Hmm. And we learned that it's a, it's a venerable town tradition. When dog patch was first founded, one of its early residents was a guy named Hezekiah Hawkins, mm-hmm. who had a daughter named Sadie, the, the homeliest gal in all the, uh, all the our hills. The big Ethel of dog patch. Exactly. This was, a, again, a funny stereotype at the time that you would see. You see it in Tex Avery cartoons, yeah. Basil Wolverton work. You know, our poor protagonist thinks the woman is going to be conventionally attractive, but then she has a weird nose and, and teeth at all angles. Ha 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 ha. ha. Well, um, it's, it's, it's in Snow White. Yeah, that's right? true. That's true. Turning into a crone. So Hezekiah ha- Hawkins, her poor pappy, does not know what he's going to do. Um, and so he calls together every bachelor in dog patch and says, this is Sadie Hawkins day. He's going to fire his gun. Then the boys start running and then he's going to fire again. And Sadie, and the British kept it coming. <laughs> there wasn't quite as many as there was a while ago. And then Sadie starts a running and the one she catches will be her husband. Ah. Now, it's not clear how he's enforcing this. Right. I mean, does he... He does have a gun he in this scenario, but presumably in Dogpatch, everyone has a gun. Like, how is he making every man in town 
run and then it, it's a reverse of the Atalanta myth whereby everyone wants this desirable princess and only the fastest runner can get her. In this case, it's a funny topsy-turvy version where the men are running away right. from the undesirable and, and the least desirable man, the least capable person, the slowest, <laughs> exactly. is the one that... Survival of the unfittest. <laughs> And I don't know, why, how does he get the, the boys to do this? Does he have blackmail material in all of them? Are these all the single closeted gay boys of Dogpatch? You know, the thing is, we live in an, a time of, uh, of total individuality where, every, where it's just assumed that every person has free will and, and, and will decide for themselves what they're going to do. But I think even as recently as the mid-20th century... There was still a kind of... You would just do what your pappy said. Yeah, there was a kind of collective understanding that if if an authority figure said, all the boys line up, the boys lined up. And there wasn't even... <laughs> even the most nonconformist boy was like, I guess I got to line up. But no one would have dared stand up against the town and say, I mean, I'm here I am analyzing a comic strip. Who knows? Who cares? But I can picture a scene where where all the all the men in town would would just acquiesce to this plan. And, 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 you know, and they would say like, I'm fast. I'm going to get, a, I, I won't get uh, steamrolled into this marriage. The longevity of all these comic strips meant that many of them had yearly traditions. You know, every Christmas, Walt Kelly would do a different riff on uh, what God rest ye merry gentlemen or some, some, right. some Christmas song with funny lyrics, deck the halls. It was deck the halls. And in this case, every November, this was a big hit with readers. And every November cap brought back, Sadie Hawkins Day. And of course, and in the town, the tradition was that that was the day that the, that the women could chase the men. And this was the day that Abner always had to avoid Daisy May. Why and would you want to avoid Daisy May? What's wrong, with, what's wrong with Abner? I don't know. What's his deal? He's a dummy is what? He's, a, he's an incel. Yeah. Uh, no, wait, he's a Volcel. Yeah, know. he's a Volcel. He, maybe he's asexual. It's, uh, that's nothing wrong with that. But for whatever reason, Abner is not interested in, in Daisy May, although they do eventually get married in the 50s. But after decades of him avoiding her every November in Sadie Hawkins Day, and eventually it comes that there's a dance before the race that the women take advantage of to while they're dancing with their bow with an X, they're wearing big hobnailed boots so they can stamp on their feet. And that means the following day in the uh, race, the men are much slower because they've had their feet stomped. But they're the just generally slower, so there's no... In, there's no uh, there's no evidence that any one particular girl is going to catch the man with the broken feet first. It's true. How does this work out when there's an equal number of Yeah, you could stomp your your, uh, your bow's feet, and then there's the girl standing next to you gets him He'll first. He'll get caught by somebody else. They haven't thought this through at all. No, no, no. I mean, they're not the brightest. They still live in Dogpatch. True. They're, they're smarter than the Slobovians, I guess. <sighs> <laughs> this became a huge trend in real life within just a year or two of it first appearing in the paper. This becomes, you know, campuses love of a good fad. Right. And this becomes an American college campus fad. Every university has Sadie Hawkins Day every year, and they do it in synchrony, synchronization with the comic strip. Really? Yes. So every July, student organizing committees start reaching out to Al Cap, telling, asking them, hey, when is the when are the Sadie Hawkins strips going to run this year? Right. Because, you know, we've got to plan this thing at... at uh, Florida A and M or right. Texas Wesleyan or, We're or taking, whatever. We're taking a break from swallowing raccoons or whatever the <laughs> latest fad is. And this becomes a huge, uh, just a a beloved tradition on college campuses. And I, I guess it speaks to a few things. I mean, for one, during the Depression, this was a dance that was not semi formal. You could wear kind of funny country gear because it would be Lil Abner themed. Mm -hmm. So you could wear crappy clothes to the dance. So it's it's an affordable Depression era date. 
Um, it also speaks to the fact that the, the jazz age is gone. You know, the assertive flapper trope flowered briefly and was gone. And now women are back in the, the boat where they've been for decades with very little control over their own destiny and choices. But this doesn't, this doesn't seem like a feminist event. It seems like one where, where, uh, I don't know, where women are, are opening themselves up to being mocked, right? I mean, if you do, if you do collect your man, the whole premise is that you couldn't get a man otherwise. Right, that you're a big Ethel. Unless the unless it's a boyfriend-girlfriend thing where they look at each other, you know, they wink across the room, like you're gonna catch me type of thing. Um, where it's a kind of flirty Well, there's no actual race. Right. But but I mean my my the recollection side of it ends, and it really is just who's gonna ask whom to the dance. I remember leading up to the Sadie Hawkins dance that I had someone I hoped would ask me. And I then there was someone I hoped wouldn't ask me, and then when I realized no one was going to ask me, it was double, triple devastating. It was definitely the message was. <laughs> well, so you finally know what it feels like to be a woman in literally any era of history. <laughs> I know what it feels like to be a woman every morning. The uh, I was just watching the new the. Greta Gerwig Little Women movie, which is a little revisionist, and it really makes a meal out of the fact, like almost the existential horror of being a woman in the 19th century and just knowing that no matter what your aptitudes or dreams or self-image is, that you have almost no power to make that happen. Things are just going to happen to you. Um, Soft power, but that may be eliminating the soft power element may be part of the revisionism. But the movie, and the movie really plays up how marriage is the only option. But, you know, as the Sadie Hawkins trend points out, even in that arena, women only had kind of the softest kind of power to be, to be flirty at a ball or, or whatever. Right. Um, and not too flirty or then you're one of those girls. Well, they had the power not to ask anybody <laughs> to stay <laughs> home from the dance. <laughs> so I guess what they what got borrowed from the strip was not so much the idea that, uh, these are the homely gals, although the event persisted for decades named after this ugly, right. famously ugly dog patchy and woman. I mean, you see it in the movie Groundhog Day. It's the, it's the climax of the film. Right, the uh, the auction, the the oh, male auction, right. where Chris Elliott gets up there and is only bid five dollars, but then then our our hero. And what's and the only reason that's funny is because it's a turnabout on the the trope we've seen for years right. of, of women getting auctioned off, a, a auctioned off essentially and objectified that way. Um, here in the Northwest, there are Sadie Hawkins events. But they are not called Sadie Hawkins Day or Sadie Hawkins Dances. Is it the clam dance? What's the, fam- the, the famous clam dance? From Ivers commercials? Yeah, the Ivers. Uh, or is it the... Yes. Uh, <laughs> women dress in a giant razor clam costume. It's the Rainier beer chase it's, where they it's dress the Artesians. In, yeah, they dress in beer, beer bottles. <laughs> uh, no, here, um, I believe it, this all dates back to a University of Washington group of girls, the, the Mortar Board, some kind of academic society oh, for yeah, girls. I remember that. That also called themselves the Tolo Club. Do you oh. know the word Tolo? No. Apparently a Chinook jargon word for um, for beating or winning or you know, success or something. Tolo. So this was the Tolo Club, the success club. And when these kind of bright so th- young... Th- this is not uncommon. There's a Taiyi Club, too. Uh, what is at the university. It's a, also a Chinook jargon word. Is that the boys' version of the Tolo Club? Uh, let's see. Uh, Taiyi is a word that means chief or boss, big boss man. 
And the Thai Club is a is a club in BC that's like you know it's like a fraternal organization. It's it's like it's like service. It's the it's their Kiwanis or Elks or whatever. Yeah. At the UW, the Tolo Club was I think it's just some kind of academic club for uh, some kind of you know sorority sororal like organization for women, and they held uh, an annual dance where they borrowed the Sadie Hawkins tradition. This is the time when the girls ask the boys, tee hee hee, tee hee hee, and everybody's got a little interest there because, as we've mentioned, men secretly just want to be asked out and and hate this double standard as much as women. Uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but. The University of Washington yearbook is called the Taiyi. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Chinook jargon still Chinook still jargon. cotton cotton your back teeth. <laughs> it sure is. Decades after you ate it. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So what was? What is the Sadie Hawkins dance called? It's called. It's now called the Tolo. The Tolo. H- have you never heard this? No. Is it still an active event? Yeah. So any Seattle public high school that has one of these dances, we'll call it Tolo. And so you'll hear these kids in the hall, unaware that this has a real name, Sadie Hawkins. Hey, is anybody going to ask you to Tolo? Like, are you going to go to Tolo? Should we go to Tolo if, if, if uh, Julie doesn't ask you? I never heard this. This is not a thing that happened in Anchorage. This is the only Chinook jargon word that I knew, aside from Hayu Muckamuck. And you knew this because your kids are in uh, Seattle Public Schools? Yes, my kids are now uh, Tolo adjacent. Have they gone to a Tolo? I believe... My son has been to Tolo. Wow! But I had, I, and I didn't. I was just making fun of him. And now, I, thanks to you, I know that there's a a long cultural tradition. And I was very, very insensitive, actually, for making fun of Tolo. It's good. It's a good name. It's better than Sadie Hawkins Day because it doesn't. Uh, right. It connects us to our to our uh, regional past rather than to some, rather, Abner. rather than some <laughs> beetle hating cartoonist. And that concludes Sadie Hawkins Day, entry 1094.GN3912, certificate number 44390 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social, that social media still exists in your era, our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts are archived at Omnibus Project, at at Omnibus Project. Um, our handles, of course, were our names, Ken Jennings and John Roderick. Uh, you may have heard of Ken Jennings. He's America's most famous boy genius. But the girls never asked me to Tolo. You may not have heard of me, but I'm America's second boy genius. Not Neither a boy nor a genius. Aging boy genii. Uh, I'm on Instagram. If you want to know more, if you want to ask me out, slide into my DMs. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to uh, Reddit or Facebook or, I guess, nowhere else because we don't have a Snapchat. I'm not even sure if you can have a Snapchat anymore. We don't have a TikTok. <laughs> we don't have a kick. Uh, but we we do have fan groups on Facebook and Reddit, uh, which I guess comprise the Democratic and Republican parties of the internet. I'm not sure which is which, though. They are called Futurelings. Futurelings. Both of them. Both groups. Um, you can mail us actual things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. If you inherited some stamps from your grandmother and also inherited some old Ray-Bans from your grandfather, you could put them in a box and send them to us. grandparents died leaving yellowed mid-century newspaper strips on their fridge, we want all of those strips. Send them. What were Frank and Ernest up to on 
November 17th, 1977. We want to know. And if it, uh, if you are so inclined, uh, we uh, appreciate your generous support at our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. And uh, we do have uh, uh, quite an quite a exciting bit of bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. Especially uh, if you give now and now there's months of bonus content there. If you, if you right. joined right now, there's probably four or five bonus episodes you could listen to immediately. Bonus episodes where we really get candid and talk about our actual selves. Not like these omnibus episodes where we stick strictly to the facts. This is this is John's <laughs> true Byronic self comes out and it's a lot of his yearning and yeah. uh, he reads his poetry. I do. I'm very sad. There. He serenades a, a girl on the internet that had just made him sad. But beautifully sad. Yes. Uh, that is patreon.com slash omnibus project. Listeners, from our vantage point uh, in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. You you have a unique piece of knowledge that we don't, the date of our collective death. Mm. Now, we hope and pray that that catastrophe may never come, but it could come soon. And in that case, this recording, like all our recordings, would be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.